bit of a different passage this morning, a bit of a different challenge, I fear, um, is about to arise. In the church, the community of the King. So this morning, we're going to continue on our journey that we've been taking through the Acts of the Apostles. You'll have this for another week, and then you're going to have a break from me for at least a fortnight. Not because I'm away on holiday, but I've asked Claude to speak. So Claude will be speaking for a couple of weeks. So just stick with me for just this Sunday and next Sunday at least, and then support Claude, of course. I don't want you just then to think you can have two weeks off. Anyway, we're on this journey, and what we are doing is we are just seeing how this early group of believers uh, actually, from such a small number, have caused such a stir worldwide that today there are not just 120 people who love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is estimated that it is in the billions, in the billions And that is an amazing thing, even though that's over 2,000 years, to think that the, the thing that started in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost has mushroomed in size to what it is today. And there are hundreds of thousands of people, even in our own country, that follow him. So we've been through all the you will receive power and you will be my witnesses and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we've seen the church added to. Now, actually, I want to correct something there. It wasn't the church that was added to. I came to this view this week as I was reading. I noticed that there is a little phrase. We talk about adding people to the church, but the, it, the writer of the Acts talks about adding people to the Lord. And I think sometimes in our attempts to add people to the church, we lose focus about what it really is about. We're we're trying to help people be added to the Lord rather than just adding people to the church. When they are added to the Lord, no doubt they become part of a worshipping community, a community of the King, and therefore what we might call church. But the reality is the call is not to be added to the church, but to be added to the Lord. And let's never forget that. Let's remember that. When we're talking to people, by the way we are living, everything that we are doing, we are looking to add people to the Lord Jesus. And that is our call. We are to be witnesses to him. I should have picked up on that a long time ago, and yet it's only this time in preparation for this one that I realized I've been talking about adding people to the church when I should have been talking about adding people to the Lord. And so it is the Lord Jesus who is central to everything that we do. And we shouldn't forget that. So we've had 3,000 added to the Lord on the day of Pentecost. We've had the healing of the lame man. And depending on how you read it, it could read that the number grew to 5,000 men. Or it might even be able to read, I can't quite make out up my mind either way, that another 5,000 were added to the Lord. What I will tell you, something is happening Jesus has gone and ascended to heaven, but something powerful is happening. And so that is where we are today. 
The community we read at the beginning, if you notice, you will have heard this type of where we began our reading today. It's like a repeat of what has already been said at the end of chapter 2. Um, where it says between verses 42 to 47 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. They, they broke bread together, house to house, and they ate their food with gladness and praising heart. And yet here again, for some reason, Luke actually starts to, or appears to make a repetition of what has already been said. Why would Luke do something like that? Why would he do that? Well, let me try and explain. There's a phrase that is used on this occasion, which is slightly different to the phrase that was used on the previous occasion. And it was about that people's um, needs. Let me just actually get you the, the, the correct rendering. In, in Acts 2, 42... It tells you that they held all things in common and they were selling their possessions and they were distributing the proceeds to all as, as any had need. But here they make a, a, another statement, but this time the statement is more complete. It says there was not a needy person among them. And so right at the outset, when they get in together and forming this community of the king, not a name that I've chosen because they've used it, just a name that I've chosen because I just love the phrase of it, community of the king. The reality is for me that they had started recognizing that they were holding things in common, that God wanted them to meet the needs of one another, and yet they have moved on from doing that and beginning that, and now that there was no one, no one, it says, not one person amongst them was in need. What is it exactly that I believe that Luke is trying to communicate here? Well, if you went back to Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, you would find that Moses was writing about the sabbatical year, the year of release of debts. And it reads like this, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I have commanded you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, and you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. And it goes on. But it is that phrase that basically... Jewish people would have known about the year of Jubilee. They will be well versed in this. They will have heard about this again and again and again. 
And so when Luke here in his in chapter 4 begins and he starts talking about that there were no needy among them, it's like he is making a pronouncement that the thing that God had promised all the way back in Deuteronomy, um, that he, if uh, they, that their sign that there was no needy among them was the sign that they were fulfilling everything that God wanted. They were the true people of God. They were the ones who were blessed. I think we can see a real mark of the heart of God and a true mark of God's kingdom, that we are so caring about one another that there is not one of us, not one amongst us who has need, genuine need. Now, I'm not preaching communism here, because in communist countries, there are I went on holiday once to Romania and my dad got into a discussion with a doctor from the same country and we were staying in this hotel and my dad got into this debate with this guy about communism and we had been out in the evenings and there were older women of about 70 years of age cleaning the streets, washing the streets, brushing the streets who didn't have loads of money, whatever it is for Romania, didn't have loads of it to splash around. And yet here is a doctor who owned a very nice car and was able to take holidays, nice holidays, and stay in the more expensive rooms in the hotel. So my dad said, I thought under communism, everyone was equal. And this was his response. Some are more equal than others but in the people of God right at the beginning here that equality issue was there definitely there this is not communism we're talking about this is care for the poor this is care for the needy and I want to say to you this morning in in real terms that we want to see people free we want to see people free I never want anyone in our congregation to ever have to go to sleep at night hungry or worrying because they don't have the money for a bill that has come in, which has been a lot more than that they were expecting. Now, most of us would say, that's a great ideal, Dave, but it's never going to happen. It'll only not happen if we're not committed to loving one another. And we are not committed to assisting one another. But the challenge is great. It is great. And the reality is that here are people who are giving and selling land. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, oh, is he going to become a heavy shepherd? Well, you can only be a heavy shepherd when you weigh my weight, all right? You can't be anything else, okay? But not heavy shepherding, telling you, me coming along saying, you've got to sell your property and give it to everybody else. Because when we get into Ananias and Sapphira, we see before they sold the land, it was theirs. When they had sold the land, the proceeds were theirs. But there was an issue. 
but needed addressing. And therefore, this isn't about us all running out and putting our houses on the market, selling them and bringing the money in and laying it in the baskets at the back. It's got nothing to do with that. But this is about something far greater. It's about us recognizing we have a responsibility one to the other. Thus we have the body analogy, the building analogy. All those things together make up those things. There is not one part which is of lesser importance than any other. And sometimes we even get ourselves into messes but that should not preclude us from actually receiving assistance one from the other. Now, some of us might sit here and think, oh, we could be taken advantage of here. I guarantee someone in this room, other than me, has thought that. I guarantee it. How do we make sure we don't get taken advantage of? We exercise the gift of wisdom. Because if someone comes to us on one occasion and says, this is a problem, and then we assist them and meet their need, and they come six months later and say, this is a problem, and we are looking at the same thing, then the problem lies with them and needs to be addressed and needs to be looked at. And it doesn't mean that we wouldn't help necessarily but means that we might help with a bit of assistance, if you know what I mean. Helping people, how, some people need to learn how to budget and stuff like that. So, just to let you know, I can't remember, it was something like £3,697 we got in our Jubilee offering. And that was without the gift-aided element of it, because we haven't claimed it yet. So I think that is absolutely fantastic. And it's our start to live in a place where we can bless and be a church that has Jubilee. That might not be exact. I have got it written down exactly, but I've, um, I'm not looking at it. So don't quote me. It was over three grand anyway. So we previously saw that Peter and John, they got themselves into deep and hot water, didn't we? And I'm telling you, whenever God does something, hot water always follows. But here we have, without a shadow of a doubt, we see that something is happening. Ananias, let's look at Ananias and Sapphira. So at the end of that first bit in chapter 4, we come to this place and they mentioned a, a, a guy who is not mentioned loads in the Bible, but is a significant figure, Barnabas. The disciples have given him, or the apostles have given him the name, the, 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 what do they call it, the caption under Barnabas, son of encouragement. You know, the strap line to his life, the son of encouragement. And he sold land that he had and he brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. Now, the reason that Barnabas, I believe, is introduced here is quite simple. He did something for the Lord and he did it in a way which was to honour God. Ananias and Sapphira, however, who were just going to appear to do the very same thing, don't do the same thing. And there are consequences. So, 
We don't exactly know what Ananias and Sapphira did. What you can try and what you might see that you might be able to deduce from the, the writing is this. They gave the impression that they had sold a piece of land and they'd given all the money, all the money, for the meeting of people's needs. They brought that to the apostles' feet and laid it down. We've sold our field and I get the impression that they will have said for this much and they lay that amount at the the apostles' feet. But they were liars. Absolute liars. Now, I guarantee in this room here, some of us might have even told lies in the last week. We may have. We may have been caught out doing something that we didn't want to be caught out doing. And so we've lied our way to get out of problems. Sometimes they're not even big lies. They can be little lies. But I want to tell you something. Lying, God hates. You see, once you've been lied to once... How can you ever trust what that person says to you again? Truthfully. If someone lies to you, how can you trust them? You might want to desperately, but I want to tell you there will always be a nagging doubt in the back of your mind. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. If you've been through a relational breakdown because of um, whether it's adultery, whether it is just a relational breakdown where somebody has lied to you and it has been painful for you, you will know exactly what I am talking about. You will know. Yes, I can forgive. Yes, I can do everything within my power to not have that nagging doubt, but it will always be there. And you'll always be testing it out. And maybe, just maybe, if God is gracious, we might get to a place where what happens is that that doubt is erased somehow. But I want to tell you, that is not an easy journey. It is not an easy journey. You see, when we lie to one another, we don't lie to one another. We lie to God. If I read this passage correctly, Ananias thinks he's telling Peter this thing. But Peter says, how could you have lied? You haven't lied to man. You have lied to God. You see, lies... Break holiness. Holiness. What we've got going on here for me is this. We have a group of people who Luke seems to me to be suggesting is the true Israel because of his reference backwards to Deuteronomy. We know that Peter picks up that idea of a theme Because he talks in his first letter, he talks about them being 
built into, they are living stones being built into a spiritual house. A spiritual house in that meaning is the temple. A spiritual house and that they are a royal priesthood, priesthood whose main aim was to serve the Lord entirely consecrated to him. Holy living before him. Holiness. Holiness. Now, holiness isn't a negative attribute. Holiness is something that is wonderful because it means that when we are with someone who is living in that way, there is real freedom. Real freedom. And what we have here is Barnabas living without guile, without lies, without trying to look better than he was, with honesty and integrity comes and does this act. And then Ananias probably, and this is me reading into the text, I guess he saw the adulation that Barnabas received and was given this title, the son of encouragement, and he wanted to be known in the same way. And so he sells the land, but he doesn't want to give it all. And so what he does is he gives part of it and tells them it was all. And therefore, he was no longer living wholly separated unto God. He was sinning against God and the Holy Spirit. Now you may feel that the response, not of Peter, because it wasn't Peter who struck down Ananias and Sapphira, it was God. You might say, hold on a minute. That's a bit rough. I mean, couldn't you have given them a second chance? Surely, you know. We're not aware that that ever happened again within the church. What we do know, however, is that fear came upon the church and came upon all those who were observing from a distance that they were feared to join themselves to them. They realized this means this is serious. You know, this is serious stuff. This isn't I'm just going to attend to Solomon's portico and the temple once a week on, on a Saturday or Friday night, whichever it is. All right? We're not going to just do that, do our bit, then live how we like, then we'll say, soz God, we're all right. I had a person I once challenged on that, worked for Youth for Christ, and his favorite phrase was soz God. He did something wrong, oh, soz God. It was so bland, so unreal for me, that I challenged him on it, and he did not like it. Well, God's my mate. Really? (laughs) I understand what you're trying to say, but God isn't just your mate. He's holy. He is a king. He is overall. He is awesome. He is majestic. We've sung about him this morning. Soz God, just don't cut it. And yet so much of modern Christianity is a soz God Christianity. Oh, God loves me. I can't lose his love. Therefore, if I make a mistake, oh, soz God, 
I can quote 1 John 1 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness I believe that 100% but not when I'm on a soz God moment because it doesn't really mean anything to me I'm only sorry till the next time I do it and then I'll, I'll, I'll be sorry then again and then I'll be sorry then again We used to say to Finley, my grandson, he's high-functioning autistic and he didn't always compute things. And we ended up by saying to him again and again, what does the word sorry mean? Because he picked up very quickly if he said sorry, because the worst thing for him was to feel that you, his papa or his nana, somehow thought badly of him. So it would be, oh, I'm sorry. And then he'd do it again. And in the end, we started saying, Finley, what does sorry mean? And we started trying to explain to him that genuine being sorry means, I won't do it again. I won't do it again. Now, it might take some of us loads of times to get to that, but never reduce God to a soz God moment. He is a holy God. He is a holy God. And I want to tell you, whilst this doesn't seem to happen in the New Testament, let's just look at where it did happen previously. All right? If I can find it on my notes, because I've got this silly thing where it goes up and down. The ark is being brought back to Jerusalem. Do you remember? 2 Samuel 6, 6 to 9. The ark's being brought back. And I always feel sorry for this poor dude, Uzzah. They're bringing it back on, the, on a cart, not the way it should be carried. And the oxen stumble, and Uzzah in his, probably his total um, wanting to be helpful, reaches out to steady the ark so it don't fall off the cart. And pow, he's dead. He's dead. They weren't doing it in the prescribed way. They weren't doing it in the way that God had said, and therefore they were doing it in unholiness, actually. Leviticus 10 tells us of the two sons of Aaron who infringed the holiness of the sanctuary and suffered the consequences. 2 Chronicles 26 tells us of King Uzziah who infringed the sanctuary. Sorry, in fact, Aaron was Joshua 7, not 2 Chronicles 26. 2 Chronicles 26 tells us of King Uzziah, and he infringed the sanctuary, and he was struck down with leprosy. It seems a little bit harsh, and yet I want to say to you, God is a holy God. We sing our songs on Sunday mornings. We talk about wanting to know the presence of God I wonder whether we do that sometimes with a very glib thought. We want the nice, soft, feely, feely moment where we feel the tremble of the Lord on us. Or the warmth, as some people would say. They feel this warmth come over them. Or they feel an emotional release. We want all those things. But what if God was to come in here this morning... And every liar in the house, he struck dead. Hold on a minute. 
I don't know that I'd be too quick to want to turn up. Now, I'm not wanting to major on that. What I'm trying to say is, these people were pursuing, they recognised they were serving a holy God. Barnabas had brought something out of integrity and righteousness, and God blessed him, and I believe blessed that gift. Ananias and Sapphira sought to cheat and defraud and deceive And that was unacceptable. I love the sense of the overwhelming love of God. We sing that song, don't we? About there's no walls he won't kick down, no mountain he won't climb, and all the rest of it. And I think there's real truth. There's truth in that. God will pursue us and pursue us and pursue us, even when we reject him, reject him, reject him. But I do want to tell you, God is a holy God. God loved all the people of the world that didn't make it into the ark because of their hardness of heart. Only Noah and his family were saved. God loved Adam and Eve, and yet he put them out of the garden and put an angel to guard the way to the tree of life. God loves sinners and saints. But when we become a saint, we get the title, then we are outworking that reality. A saint is supposed to be a holy person, aren't they? We're supposed to take on the likeness of God. Holiness is one of the attributes of the Almighty God. And here in this passage, the Almighty God responded to that attribute being violated. What was it he said to the children of Israel? Be holy, for I am holy. That's what he said. Be holy, for I am holy. Peter picks up the same theme later on. Be holy. For God is holy. Isaiah, he cried out, didn't he? I am a man of unclean lips. He saw the glory of the Lord in the temple. And he recognized his sinfulness. I want to tell you, when God starts to move, it becomes uncomfortable because our sin becomes more magnified. Somehow we think something's going wrong, but it isn't. When God's presence is around, it's like it highlights stuff. Just quickly, I bought a pair of uh, new glasses because I was finding it difficult to read the other week. And and I've decided that I was going to get a proper set of Oakley sunglasses, but with very focal lenses. Well, they came back and I was thrilled because they look cool. I think they do anyway. So I've got these Oakleys and I put them on and I start looking around and I'm thinking, oh, things aren't so sharp. (laughs) So I mentioned it to them in the shop. They, oh yeah, it takes a bit of time to get used. Lots of people say this takes a lot of time to get used to Oakley sunglasses. Well, I go out, I put them on, I'm driving home and I want to tell you, it was like the white signs were absolutely... Have you ever been to a 3D movie and put on them glasses? 
and you're sat in the seat and stuff seems to be flying out of the screen. That's what the signposts looked like when I was driving. They looked like they were in 3D and I couldn't read a word on them until I was right on top of them and then it was very clear. You know, <clears throat> I wasn't driving into them. They were still on the, on the side of me. I could judge that. But the reality is they weren't clear, so I took them back, you know. But that's an illustration of how our sin starts to look when we start to see the holiness and the presence of God come into a place. It's not easy to be a sinner. So if you start to see that God puts his finger on things in your life, don't think everything's going wrong. Things are just beginning to go right. They're just beginning to go right. Because when sin's exposed... You can deal with it. Because we've become so used to it sometimes that it no longer bothers us. But when God puts his finger on it, it becomes exposed. I finish with this. There's a, I, there was something... Um, I want to say two things, actually. Someone here and I'm not saying it will be someone, there could be someone here who will say to me, that's why we need to come out from among them and be separate. And that was done for years by the monastic communities, coming out, separating themselves off, and being separate. Holiness is about separating ourselves off to God. All right, it is. But Jesus modelled a different type of holiness. It wasn't run away like the Qumran people into the desert and hide away from everybody, right? It was, Jesus was holy, and yet he engaged with sinners, but without compromise. Did you notice that? Jesus demonstrated a different way of holiness where he engaged with sinners, those that the religious didn't like him mixing with. And he went, he engaged with them, but without compromise. That's what God calls us to be. That's what salt and light's all about. We're only salt when we're mixing in and with people around us who don't know Jesus. We are salt, we are light. When we're gathered here, it might be nice. Every now and again, <clears throat> someone who doesn't know Jesus might pop in. Or if you bring somebody, they, you know, they, might, they might make that decision to be joined to the Lord. But reality, most people are likely to come to Jesus through you leading them to him in the world in which you live. So at the school at which you work, if you're a nurse, where you're going about your daily nursing. If you're a teacher, where you're teaching. Whatever it happens to be that you're doing, it's where you are. Holiness. Being separated to God. I'm here for him. Serving him. Living holy. Not allowing myself to be drawn in to what's going on around me, which I know will displease him even though that will make some people feel uncomfortable. And then 
we might see the last part of what we read here, which is this. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done, done among the people by, at the hands of the apostles. Many signs and wonders. You know, we like the trinkets. Don't, I'm, I don't want to minimize them. We like the trinkets, the signs, the wonders, the healings, the words from God, the prophecies, the dreams. We like all those things. But maybe we would see more of the real healings, dreams, prophecies, words of knowledge, if we were to live holy before God. Let's just pray. I'm just going to pray in general in a moment. And I'm not going to ask anybody to stand up this morning or whatever, but you know where you are with God. You know maybe some of the things that in this last week you have participated in could be gossip, you could have lied, you could have done something which you know that if you really look at it, it doesn't reflect who God is, whose image we are supposed to reflect. That's why Paul says, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. That is your true worship. And I just want you right now, just in this moment, if there's something which immediately comes to mind, I just want you to bring it to the Father right now. Because 1 John 1, 9 is true. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The reality is, however, what does it mean to ask forgiveness? I am going to live my life in a way where I am not going to do that again. It's not going to be Sol's God moment. I don't want to treat it cheap. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer talked about. Cheap grace. And what an anathema that is. Because grace was never cheap when Jesus died for us. Never cheap. Cost God everything. His son. But just bring it to the Father now. Exercise 1 John 1 9. And then walk with the secure, secure knowledge that God has heard you and that that means that you are now walking before him righteous in his sight. Father God, you know that each one of us struggles with sin but not to the point yet of death. And Lord God, we know that when you expose sin in our lives, just as the writer to the Hebrews wrote, you are disciplining us. You are showing us, Lord God, um, that you are our true Father and that you care about us because you don't want us, you don't want us to fail and you don't want us to be illegitimate. And therefore, Father, when you've, you touch hearts and you 
Reveal things in us, Lord God, which we need to bring to you. Lord, it's not with condemnation that you do it, but you do it because you love us and you want us to walk in greater freedom, greater joy, greater abundance of living. So, Father, I want to say, bless this congregation this morning. I thank you for each and every person here. I pray, Lord, that you will just... Father, just let them know how much you love them, how much you care for them, that, Father God, their house will be filled with joy this week because they walk with you. And, Lord, may they carry the fragrance of you into their workplace, into their street, into their home and their relationships. May they carry your fragrance with them everywhere they go. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.